So if you would please please opening to Revelation chapter 17. We are, if you're, if you're new with us and joining into our study, we have been going through the book of Revelation. And we want to remind everyone that it's for believers. God wrote this book not to be ignored as the last book in the Bible. But he wrote this book to let his children know, I've got it under control. Jesus wins. Now here, listen. Be encouraged. A lot of times, especially with what we're going to read today in chapter 17, we're in the thick of the visions. Remember, revelation is one revelation. It's Jesus that's revealed. But we have a lot of images going on. But when Jesus stands, and it's really cool because in chapter 19, he comes on a white horse and he's established. His kingdom comes to the earth and he rules and he reigns and it's what everybody desires and we long for and we we hasten, we, we ask the Lord to hasten that day. But while we're here, uh, there's some imagery that we're going to go through. Uh, we, we, in chapter 17, we look, and you can see maybe a title in your Bible, The Great Prostitute and the Beast. Here's a woman riding on a beast. This is bizarre. This is weird. But there is to be understanding that we gain, uh, not particularly for all the decoding, but for the encouragement that God wins. No, no matter who looks like they're winning, God wins. And so we can take comfort and encouragement in that. Chapter 18 is actually uh, judgment upon the woman, but we see particulars on how she went about conspiring with the kings of the earth to seduce. Uh, so we, we will do both chapters together, but we'll read through chapter 17 and uh, highlight several of the verses within chapter 18. So let's uh, hear from God's word, Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had seven, the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it is and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not, come, has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not... It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. 
These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Then they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us see. Help us discern. But most importantly, help us be encouraged by the promises that are in this chapter. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have ever uh, come across, I know you've come across the the intro of Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. I'm trying to find somebody that's read. It's a three-volume series. Anybody read The Tale of Two Cities? I'm still searching. All right. (laughs) I was asking people with English degrees, have you read this? No, they haven't read it. But uh, the, the premise of the books are about a man who is imprisoned in France, in Paris. This is right before the, it's the days leading up to the French Revolution, the years before. And he goes to London to reunite with his daughter. And it's the London-Paris tale of two cities. But it begins with these famous words. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So we all know that. We know that part. But listen to what he goes into, and, and he's, he's bringing that we have all this stuff happening, but it's not happening at the same time. It's the best of times, the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It sounds like Ecclesiastes. Time for this, time for that. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. And then he says this. We... We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. So we, he, I think within that introduction, he brings out the tension that Christians experience because we live in an age where we, we have the promises of God, but not fully yet. We have a lot of them that are full, but they bring their fruition into heaven. And heaven is so powerful that it spills over into our present day reality experience of the Christian life. And we're grateful for that. And these last chapters of Revelation tell us the tale of two cities, of the great city Babylon and the holy city, the new Jerusalem that God will bring, Jesus will bring on the earth. Here the seventh bowl informed us in chapter 16 of God's judgment on Babylon. God will judge Babylon accordingly, just like every other civilization has been judged according. The punishment always fits the crime. These chapters tell us of the tactics the tactics and deceptive power that Babylon had. But understand, Babylon still has because Babylon's been around for millennia. And there's always, in every age, there's a Babylon that's represented. Now remember, it's not for, we can go, we can go like really in depth to try to figure out what these mean. But I just remember what the kings and the, who the eighth, and this one's part of the seven, We're not going to go into that depth today. If you're interested, let's have a conversation. I'd love to talk about it. 
But for our purposes, we have to be say, all right, what is God saying? Remember with the, the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, there's a concurring effect of God's revelation. Everything is moving toward a final judgment, and his mercy is on display by not bringing his judgment now. So he's patient, and he's waiting for people to come to him. Well, it's the same thing why he doesn't judge the, ba- the, the woman Babylon, the city Babylon, now. He, he's still waiting. So there's a concurring uh, effect. And, and what's happening is within Babylon, there's reiterations and iterations of Babylon every generation, I believe. Now, within our... You know, well, we also see in Babylon that Satan's primary weapons, uh, one of his primary weapons is seduction. Here, this woman, this is known as a prostitute, selling herself out to deceive people. So persecution, deception, seduction are Satan's weaponry. Uh, And these images encourage the church to stand strong in wisdom. It's like mind for wisdom and the power of God. We are to stand strong on the rock of Christ. And this means not falling for the seductive, empty promises of a doomed kingdom. But you know what? Living the Christian life is hard. It's hard to stand strong. The seductor is convincing and appealing to all of our senses. Even John marvels. I marveled at her. Now, we don't know if he was taken by her appearance or just the, the power that she had. But John marvels. The, the, the angel says, hey, don't marvel. Remember who you're looking at. See, we struggle in this now and not yet component of our Christian experience. We have all the promises of heaven, but they're not actualized just yet fully until we are with him. Now, within our Christian experience, we are not fully perfected where we want to be, don't we? We're undergoing transformation that makes us more and more like Jesus every day. Uh, really, we are, we are to live in our obedience to make the Jesus that is in us come alive and shine out. So we we're, we're, we're want what's inside to come out to the outside. We are becoming outwardly what we already are inwardly by his grace. And this experience, this tension of now and not yet is a crucible where crucibles were were used and still are to some degree of proving the value and worth of a precious metal. So God uses a crucible of our life in the city of Babylon to make us more like Christ so he can prove the value and the worth of our faith in him and the life that we have in Christ so it shines for others to see. Now, this crucible that we're in is all around us. It is Babylon. It is the great city. Now, listen, God, he does not remove us from the city. He left us to have our light shine in that darkness of the city. Our, Our recoil from what we're around is that we want to escape. We want to just, even if just collect together and we just don't interact with the city. We don't interact with the world. Or some people take it to the extremes of moving to a remote area, rural area where nobody is around. I want 10 mile radius between me and anybody else. You've met people like that? They're a little off. They're a little off. God's, that's, God wants us to be in communion with one another. But listen, when Jesus in John 17, when he prays for his disciples... He doesn't pray for them to be removed from the world. You know what he prays for? Their oneness. Because their oneness is to become the hope of the world. That's why he says, so 
This, they, will, they will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. They will see your oneness, the oneness that, that God has within himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. So our oneness and our joy and our being together is the hope of the world, the city that we're in. Now, this city, don't like Jesus. This city, given the chance, wants to kill him. They can't find him, so who are they going to kill? His people. And we see that from earlier in our study in chapter 12. So look, our, our, we are not to flee the city. We are to shine with Jesus in the city. That's why uh, the, the title of this message is the, the Crucible of Discipleship in the City. Now, this passage gives us confidence of Jesus' ultimate victory in order to sustain our faith. It gives us discernment to uh, the futility of our surroundings and gives us courage to stand firm in the shifting sands of culture. We've got to have a mind called, called to wisdom, the, the angel tells John. Now, the first thing we see in the first few verses of chapter 17 is the seductive power of the woman. Here, this woman riding on the beast represents Satan's manipulation and captivation of unbelievers through the, the, the weaponry of seduction. And in 2 Timothy 2.6, we read that, that unbelievers are held captive by Satan to do his will. This woman is said to be a prostitute, someone who sells out to the wishes of the beast. She gets her power and prestige from the beach. Uh, the beach. Ha! Some people do because they're all about appearance. <laughs> from the beast, <laughs> she gets her seduct, she, purple, scarlet, all of this beauty, jewelry. It's, she is something to look at. We don't look away quickly. She's not hideous. She's alluring. But in her power and appearance, she distracts from the hideousness of the beast the one who has the blasphemous names. And the beast, I think, is the red dragon that we saw earlier, Satan himself, who seeks to devour. And what Satan seeks to do, uh, she's distracting him from his devouring jaws. He just wants to annihilate all Christianity, going after, remember, going after the offspring of the woman because he can't have the son anymore. And we find that she is drunk. She, she makes others drunk with sexual immorality, but she is drunk with the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the saints. So her, she's seducing everyone by her appearance. She is seducing through sexual, sexual immorality, promising a thrill, but really all it does is kill. All sin has a fleeting pleasure to it. Hebrews 11.25 reminds us of that. Moses did not go after the fleeting pleasures of sin, but chose to the reproach with the people of God to lead them as God would call him. And you've, you may have heard this phrase before, that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost way more than you're willing to pay. Sin has that allurement, and that's why it is, it is, it's necessary for us as God's people to, to walk together with a unity that helps us not be not get zeroed in like a, a, a fly going to a flame. Satan is having his way in Christians' lives because we crave acceptance. And we use our appearance to get that acceptance. We know people who 
you, you, you rarely see them wear an outfit twice because they just feel like they have to keep on putting on, putting on something else. But all of us have this craving, and so we will change the way we talk, walk, present ourselves. We will change something because we're looking for acceptance, and Satan is having his way because he distracts us from understanding who we are in Christ. But he also, he has his way in our lives through sexual immorality. It bombards us at every turn, every commercial, every move. You will, you know, uh, with those crazy weird algorithms, you're on YouTube, and all of a sudden, the suggestion has something alluring. You click on that once, they got you. So pornography, pornographic images, or just slight light porn. Let's start with that. And it is destroying so much of what God says needs to be built up in his grace, in his love. But we think, we think if we just keep it hidden, we're not hurting anything. But we're hurting our own soul's connection with God. We want to experience him and we want to uh, understand his love and know his love and have his love set us free. But it comes at us through every angle. Uh, I'm just always reminded uh, our, our missionary friends that come in town to visit, come into the States, back into the States to visit. They can't wait to go back into their third world country because the onslaught of lust and sexual immorality is so much. They're like, we're not used to this. We want to go back. but We don't see billboards. We don't have TV and commercials. We should learn something. But just reminded of J.R. Tolkien's um, words in his book, The Fellowship of the Ring, all that glitters is not gold. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. Now, the second paragraph shows us, this tells us about the beast. And, and the beast operates with a power that's a political power. We see the woman is on many waters, and the waters represent the governing authorities of the earth. Just like waters can be calm and then can be tumultuous, Governments are the same way. We want the calm government, but as long as the government's leading people, it's going to be tumultuous. See, where the woman distracts and captivates in seeking to devour with power of seduction, the beast distracts and captivates seeking to devour with the power of authoritarian policymaking. Now, the difference between authoritative and authoritarian, um, we have... In our, in our country, we operate, which this is the war between uh, demo, uh, political parties. How do we interpret the Constitution? Is it authoritative or is it authoritarian? Or we are ruled by the Constitution, not by a person. Where in other countries, a, a dictator is an authoritarian. No, you have to do it this way. Now, within our country, both sides come at the angle of the Constitution saying what? You have to do it this way in order to make society flourish. So everybody's got an opinion about that, but it's the way it goes about. Now, look, given man's pride, all policymaking will seek to be authoritarian rather than authoritative because politicians think people are stupid, left and right. They think they have all the knowledge. And so therefore, you really don't understand. Now, given the pride. Now, believers, we, we want, uh, the other night in the prayer time, Stu was asking for more, more politicians to be, to be honoring Christ. 
And, and praise God that we can pray that we live in a country that we can say, can we just elect more people that serve Jesus rather than their self-interest? But in our pride and the pride of man, self-interest finds its way in there. And we have to be discerning. Now we're also told that the seven heads, we, we see seven heads and ten horns on this beast. Uh, seeking to find exact matches for the heads and the horns, it will prove confusing. And seven and ten, think about it this way, within, within uh, these images that we have, seven and ten represent completeness. Ten fingers, ten toes. When you're missing some, it looks a little off, but like ten is completeness. Seven as well. So here is these horns uh, and heads represent complete strength and complete authority. They are representative of governments that possess complete strength and authority. Now, usually the strength, you need to, in, in coups, you have somebody coming together. We need to be stronger so we can uh, take over to get the authority. Now, we're told the seven heads are kings, and then the seven heads are mountains. They're representative. The kings, uh, these are kings who are seduced by the power they have over people. And they have partnered with the woman to gain the advantage they think will give them complete authority. Isn't that the same temptation that all elected officials face all the time in our culture? If I can just gain an advantage, I can have the the authority to, to push this through. We read that the kings do the work of the dragon going after Christians and they want to kill Christians. The kings go after Christians by seeking to imitate Jesus. Look at verse 8. They say, uh, this beast who was and is not and is to come. That's a slight difference from Jesus who has been presented in Revelation as who was, who is, and is to come. So it's a little, it's mimicry, it's imitation. But the beast that rises out of the waters mimics Jesus also by having a mortal wound. He seems to have survived a mortal wound. Satan will, he disguises himself as an angel of light, we read in James. And, and while kings want to wipe out Christians, they have to settle for unbelievers because they can't wipe out the Christians. But unbelievers give their complete allegiance over to the kings. The governing authorities promise salvation and freedom through the right policies, the right leaders. But only Jesus' rule will last forever. Only Jesus' rule will last And the seven heads were also said to be seven mountains. And this would be a direct reference to Rome in the first century. Rome was built on seven mountains, way high up, hard to get to, hard to take over. But the name of the woman is Babylon. So seven mountains, that's Rome. We have Babylon, that is her name. So what's being represented by this image? Rome is simply another Babylon that has come on the scene, seeking to overthrow God and kick him off his throne. So it started with Babel, when everybody said, let's collectively get together and make ourselves a name to be one, really to be equal with God. And all the, it's really, we, we want God to obey us, the same thing that Adam did. So it starts with Babel, and then we see these iterations in Egypt. And then Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria that came and, and, and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And then Babylon comes on the scene with Nebuchadnezzar and he stands up and he looks out onto everything. He says, is this not all because I am so great? And God humbled him. 
But that's, it's that pride that we see in Babel and in Babylon. You see it in Pharaoh and Egypt. You see it in, um, forgetting the, the king's name in Assyria, Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria and Nineveh was, he, he looks out, looks out at, uh, at the northern kingdom. He says, this is in Isaiah. He says, come on, don't, don't, nobody's other, no, all the nations that we've destroyed, they pray to their gods. Their God didn't come through. Go ahead, pray to yours. He ain't going to come through. I'm going to destroy you. It's the pride that begins to come out. Then we see it in the Medo-Persian Empire, then in Greece, and then in Rome. All, all of these iterations of Babylon have the same proud stance before God. But interestingly, the city Jerusalem is situated on seven hills. Jerusalem succumbed to the city of Babylon as well, when they killed Jesus, they said, remember, it's the Jews who said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. They looked at Jesus and said, you are in our way from ruling over these people. We have to get you out. Babylon represents all of our desires to remove God from his throne and insert ourselves. And we feel this tension as believers when God doesn't show up for us like we want or as quickly as we'd like. We have a temptation to look elsewhere. Or we look at God and say, God, I, I don't deserve this. I'm not owed. You owe me differently because of my life that I've lived for you. Careful. That's where pride sneaks in. And we miss the promise of God and the understanding that he's working his plan, even though we look at it and say, that's never going to work. And that's what... God reminds his people, he said, if I told you, I told you what was going to happen, it'd blow your mind. So you just have to trust me. I'm, I'm working it. I'm doing it. Or we would say, it ain't going to work. God says, you're on a need-to-know basis. Right now, you don't need to know what's happening right now. Right now, you just need to trust me. Now, in two verses, verses 8 and 17, we have where we draw our encouragement from this chapter. The Lamb's victory is security for God's people. Look there in, in verse 8, we have names that are written in the book of life. There's a security. Those whose name is written in the book of life will not ultimately give in to the woman and to the beast because they are reserved for Jesus himself. So this is a, this is a promise and a promised victory that we cannot get caught up in the appearance of the woman. We cannot get caught up in her seduction of sexual immorality. We can stand strong as we look at Jesus, who is the conqueror. And he's the one that, remember 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What we are to do to not look at the woman's appearance is to see how beautiful Jesus is all the time. He is beautiful. And we gaze upon him. And, and 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we become what we behold. I'm, that's like a little paraphrase. When we see him, we become like him. But the lamb, in verse 14, the lamb, I love these words. The lamb will conquer them. He wins. Jesus wins. And only Jesus has the true authority and strength that everybody on this earth craves to grab a hold of. Every other form of authority. Every other form of earthly strength is a mirage. It's an illusion. It will not last. It really is not there at all. And what I love, that he is the Lord of lords, king of kings. Look, and those 
with him are called, chosen, faithful. Those are words that God has proclaimed over us. We don't earn them. We don't find them and discover them. Okay, now I feel called. Hold on a second. You're going based on your feelings, not what God has declared over you. See, these are identity words. And a lot of times I I even put in my notes when I type this out, our identity in Christ. But And I say that a lot. We need to be reminded of our identity in Christ. Here, let's think about it this way. Our identity is Christ. It's him. It's him. Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And listen, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. We sit on the throne with Jesus. We need to learn to live that out. Amen? We need to learn to live that out. But we are called and we are chosen. And listen, I need to. I'm telling myself, listen. <laughs> See, I, I have for so long tried to be found faithful when the emphasis is on my work for God to, that he would just prove, he would show me faithful. But this identity word is now saying, no, you already are faithful. Walk it out. That gives us confidence, doesn't it? God has declared these things over us. Let's be obedient to walk them out and see what he'll do and the miracles that he'll bring into our lives because because Jesus is is coming out of us. And then the last little section of 17, this goes into chapter 18, that we see that evil turns on itself. Evil is never at peace with itself or anybody else. There's always more to get. There's always more to conquer. There's always more. And the horns, which are, they represent the strength, are only using the ten horns. They're only using the woman until she doesn't work for their purposes anymore. And they turn on her. You're not working anymore. There's always a power grab when evil is at work. And the lust for power will seek to kill off any rival. And even if it's God as the rival. So the lust for power, we, we sell out people to get that power. And we will sell out God if necessary in order to get a power. Now for, for I think for our, in our Christian walk, I think the power that we go after is control. Because in our desire for control, we look for peace through that control. If I can control people around me, if I can control work environment, if I control things, then I'll be more at peace. And God says, no, 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 no. That's, a, that's a, a grab for strength that we need to trust him for. Ultimately, the beast and the dragon will kill off everyone because he is loyal to himself alone. But then we see there is a swift fall. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. Jesus comes on the scene. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon falls. Just like God is showing that everything that man tries to build in his own strength, apart from God, apart from faith in Christ, dissolves and it just goes away 
Babylon itself, this great city, all the iterations of pride, thinking that we can get one over on God or just live in our own strength and sufficiency. God says it will not work because that kingdom is doomed. We know what the end play is. Destruction on that. Look at Revelation 8, uh, 18, 8, verse 8. Look how swift this is. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. We see in all of these pronouncements of judgment that everybody that was connected to the woman is looking around going, we got nothing now. So everything that she promised, all the the kings and the the merchants on the sea, everybody she's promised something to are left empty-handed because that's what pride is. And, and a false power and authority does. It leaves you empty-handed. Verse 10, they will stand far off in fear of her torment, thinking that distance from her will save them. Not so much. And say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon. So they're looking. Wait a minute. This is Babylon. This, everything was working right. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. Now, that probably doesn't represent 60 minutes, it represents a very concise, small, short amount of time. Verse 17, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, and they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned and cried out, alas, alas, for the great city. This is where all their hope was in this city and it's gone. Where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. So these who had this wealth on the seas show up back to a country that doesn't exist anymore. Their money is worthless. Their trade is worthless. And then verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Every, every government, every kingdom, that has ever existed on this earth is gone. In, in the Middle East, they got to dig really deep to find remnants of these other civilizations that at one time were the strongest, biggest, mightiest things on the earth. And God says, it all comes to an end. So, this country will come to an end. I'm grateful we live in it. But what God is saying is don't trust in what we're seeing Trust in the unseen. We serve God. His kingdom will last forever. That's where our devotion and our allegiance is. Look, the the regimes that we see in the rest of the world that are, uh, you know, I think the United States has the, the seduction that the devil is using against us. Uh, but, you know, in Russia, in China, Indonesia, Satan is, he's devouring, like with his mouth, killing Christians. The Middle East, killing Christians. It's a different type of, but Satan is going after the offspring of the woman. He's going after us. But listen, we don't put our trust in what we see. We put it in the eternal kingdom of Jesus himself. So what's this mean for us? Look at chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is a merciful call from Jesus saying, Come out, be, 
This, this phrase is a helpful phrase. It's not found in Scripture anywhere, but we've heard it a lot. Be in the world, but not of the world. Be in the city, but we are not to be defined by the city. We are to, in our love for one another, become the hope of the city. The hope of those that we interact with on a daily basis. This doesn't mean we leave and escape. It means we rise up in the power of the Spirit to be, to be that lamp that's set on a pole so it gives its light. That's what God's called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the Spirit's power to make confusing things easier to grasp. And Lord, we recognize that while there's greater depth to go into, all of it is for the encouragement that you have control over everything. You are the strongest and you have all the authority. And Jesus, we await we cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Establish your kingdom. But God, we also recognize that establishing your kingdom also means new birth. It means people trust you for salvation and your spirit invades the inside of them to make them alive to you. God, we ask that we would be a church that would see that take place in our midst. That we would see your kingdom grow and expand in our children. We would see your kingdom grow and expand by those who come in and have no idea why they came in. Because you're calling them and you're drawing. God, put us in touch with people and give us a boldness and a courage to be able to say, God's going after you. How can I be a means of support? How can I share the hope that you're needing, that God offers? Oh, God, would you give us this week, would you give us opportunities to share your truth, to share the hope of salvation with the people that we love, in our families, the people that we work with, the neighbors that we interact with? God, would you please use us, mobilize us, so we don't sit back and, and just wait for things to happen, but, but we, we, we're looking for your kingdom. At every turn. And God, protect us, please. Give us a purity and a, a purity of heart and mind that allows us to come out of the world in a sense, not to, to be different and to be the light that Christ is in us, that we might shine with that. So, God, uh, in our relationships with one another, help us be vulnerable and honest because you do give the gift of conviction and repentance so we can get back on track with you, so we can shine bright. Because that's our greatest good, is when we're seeking your glory. God, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's be reminded again, as we, it's a, my prayer is this go, but let's be reminded of our commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.